Let's go ahead and get started. And Janie, why don't you open us in a word of prayer? Pray for Sharon. Okay. Father God, we come to you and we thank you that you hear us. Um, I just pray that you will take care of this problem hastily for Sharon. And we know that you know everything in our lives and uh, you love us. And our Lord Jesus Christ is here with us, guarding us. So I lift her up, and I pray that you will, um, through your Holy Spirit, um, teach us all things you want us to learn today through uh, raised teaching of the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome you all again, and we're going to continue in our study of the book of Romans. Last time I didn't quite get done with our little passage that I've entitled The Urgency of the Times. So if you haven't already turned to Romans chapter 13, I'll give you a quick review. And there's a couple of things I'd like to do today. I'd like to finish the passage. It won't take too long, I'm hoping. And then give you an introduction to chapter 14. 14 is an interesting chapter, but I think it's misunderstood or not understood, and oftentimes not uh, even read, but uh, I want to give an introduction to it so that we have an understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate. So, in the book of Romans, we're dealing with a letter that was written to believers that lived right on this spot here. Now, this was the center, so they probably lived in areas around the Roman Forum, but they would have been very familiar. Archaeologists have uncovered much of what remains, at least what remains, of the first century. And you can visit it today as we did a couple of years ago. But the Book of Romans, again, we're outside of these two major divisions of the book. The provision of God's righteousness for lost humanity, for mankind that is in desperate need. Paul uses theological terms because he's writing to believers, so he describes that provision as justification. And then chapters 9 through 11, he's vindicating God's righteousness in that that righteousness is extended to Gentiles and to a Jewish audience in the first century. This would have been a little bit of a surprise. And also a surprise that the nation of Israel is set aside, so God is vindicated in setting aside the nation of Israel on a temporary basis until he completes his work with a church age that is not revealed in the Old Testament. There's some hints of it and some passages that allow for it, but no explicit prophecy concerning a church age. So that's the doctrinal section of the book of Romans, and we're in the application portion, in fact, getting close to the end here. We've seen uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. How does this justification work out in relationship to God himself? What does it look like? And Paul uses the uh, Jewish imagery of a sacrifice, but in this case, it's a living sacrifice. In other words, 
a yieldedness, total yieldedness to God, making ourselves available to whatever he may have. The last part of chapter 12, how does it look in relationship to the church? Verses 3 through 21, so we spent some time there. And now we're completing chapter 13. What does this justification look like? How has it worked out in relationship to the culture or society? And uh, we've seen three different parts relating to it. We're in the last part of it. And hopefully today we'll get into the beginning of this last area that deals with Christian liberty. Chapter and a half, but I think we'll get through it much more quickly than we have all of the other verses that we've looked at so far. In outline form, the application of God's righteousness, application to God himself, application in relationship to the church, application to society, and in that, the three parts, first seven verses, submission to authority, beginning in verse 8, the uh, righteousness in relationship to others it looks like love. So he sums, it, sums up the entire Old Testament with loving your neighbor as yourself. So we have a few verses there. And now we're looking in verses 11 through 14, where he's stimulating us to uh, living in the light. That kind of summarizes those verses. We saw the significance of the times do this, knowing the time. And we spent a lot of time discussing the different times in the program of God. Won't review all of that, but knowing the times that it is already the hour. I also spent some time talking about how he's using all of these time words in a more theological or a more non-literal sense. He's not talking about 60 minutes. He's talking about an extended time, in fact, a time frame that encompasses the entire church age or the time after the church age. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I forgot I had this little cartoon kind of emphasizing understanding the times. The reason I probably forgot it because I used it in probably 2016, as it indicates there. So verse 12, the stimulation to put on light. That's where we ended last time. The night is almost gone. And again, he's using night in a metaphorical sense or in a sense, not just a short period of time in terms of a few hours, but in terms of the entire church age, the night and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I charted uh, some of these ages in the program of God, primarily dealing with Israel, the top portion there, Israel's origin, Israel's emerging, the kingdom age, that's K. Then there's a little gap. There's an exile as a result of the collapse of the kingdom. There's a return for the preparation of the Messiah. Then the Messiah comes. Messiah is rejected. And then there's another gap of virtually 2,000 years so far. And then another regathering. And then the Messiah returns. And there's a kingdom age. And when Paul is describing the night, it's in relationship to the church age that is paralleling. Bottom of the slide there. 
he describes the period of time when the Messiah is gone as night. And the reason for that is the Messiah is the light of the world. So when the light of the world is gone, then we're in a period of darkness. And the Bible does describe this age as an evil age. In fact, there's a couple of scriptures we can look at here. Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sin so that he might rescue us from this, this present evil age. Paul describes it as darkness or night in the uh, Romans passage that we're looking at. So it's described as an evil age. We talked about it being controlled by Satan. There's many other passages besides 2 Corinthians 4.4 and Ephesians 2.2, where Satan is the god of this world. He's the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, controlling the world system, 1 John 5.19. So the night is almost gone and the day is near. And again, he's using these time notes in terms of non-literal, but referring to the day that uh, the Messiah, who is the light of the world, returns. And when he returns, it'll be a new age. We call that the kingdom age. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of of light. So we can add to the night here and put a little day here. In terms of our timeline, that would coincide with the coming of the Messiah, the return of Jesus Christ, and the establishment of a new age characterized by light with the presence of the light of the world. Uh, Another way of describing that in the Bible is the kingdom age. So you can plot it on a timeline. And I've also mentioned that uh, there are four images that are combined into one. So you might even say five images, all of these images relating to time, hour, night, and day. He uses the imagery of awakening from sleep. And he's not talking about literal sleep, but more spiritual, lethargic sleep. Sleep uh, in a spiritual sense, not being aware of the times in which we're living in, not being aware of what God is doing. We spent lots of time talking about that, so he needs to awaken. He also uses the images of light and darkness relating to night and day. We looked up lots of passages relating to it. In fact, we ought to look up Ephesians 5. Somebody look up that. We didn't quite look at that one last time. I mentioned that uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, even beginning in verse 1 all the way through about verse 8, that passage, we read it last time, it parallels what we're looking at in the Romans 13 passage, but so does Ephesians 5. Does somebody have that passage? You want to start reading in verse 8? Steve, you got it? Yeah, I got it. Uh, Verse 8, Ephesians 5, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Okay, stop there. Notice notice how parallel 
light and darkness, but also notice that we were formerly in darkness. We are no longer of the night. We've been transformed inwardly, and now we represent the light of the world. And in reality, we can be lights. We are children of light. In other words, we are regenerated and have that light that comes from the Messiah. And now we can bear that fruit. But in order to do that, we need to avoid the deeds of darkness. So keep reading. Read uh, 12 to 14. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And there's the parallel with awakening. So you can see clear parallels in Ephesians clear parallels in First Thessalonians 5, and they're using, or Paul is using, similar terminology in all three of the passages. So it's not unusual that we have the same author because he uh, has the same concepts in all three passages. And as the Ephesians passage, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. We'd spend lots of time on that, but I think most of you are pretty familiar with what those look like. All you have to do is look out into the world and see what that is like. All you need to do is reflect upon uh, your past life of unbelief and separateness from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you understand what the deeds of darkness are all about. Now, there's another image that Paul brings out, putting on clothes. It's a different image. And the last part of the verse includes that. And we have a couple more parallel passages that uh, use this image, Ephesians 4, 22 and through 24, in the Colossians 3 passage, where we are to put aside the old garments, representing these deeds of darkness, and putting on, in other words, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, such that the new nature is now visible. The new nature that uh, reflects the light of the light of the world. So put on the armor of light. And let's take a look. Here's that other image that I brought out that combines all of the others. I won't go over it, but a soldier in the first century oftentimes would uh, spend the night preparing for the next day or relaxing, and he might even indulge himself in the deeds of darkness. But he would need to wake up in the morning. If he's, if he's not fully alert, his life is in danger. And the imagery here is to put on that that is appropriate to go into battle, to go into war. And he has to set aside those deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So we use the imagery of a Roman soldier. And let's take a look at a couple of passages that emphasize the new armor, the new clothing that we can put on in 2 Corinthians. And let's get a couple of people to read those passages. Somebody look up 2 Corinthians 6 and uh, somebody get chapter 10, verse 4. Anyone got that one or the first one, 2 Corinthians 
six four. Okay. Uh, is that uh, Mary Lee? Mary Lee, you got yeah. ten four. Okay, uh, Laurel, you got Second uh, Corinthians six four. Yeah. Why don't you read that one and then uh, skip to verse seven? Okay. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. That right? And then seven. Yeah. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. Okay, weapons of righteousness. In other words, we have spiritual armor. We could actually read Ephesians 6 as well, where we're exhorted to put on the full armor of God. Then Mary Lee, 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy stronghold. Okay. In fact, read the next verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See the imagery of uh, warfare and battle, but our armor is different. Our armor is the armor of light, is what Paul describes here. So it descends from the light of the world, essentially. Now, 13.13 through 14 gives the specifics, kind of expanding verse 12. And first he describes the life in darkness that we don't need to spend a lot of time on. In verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Now, he's looking at the day in the future. In other words, we anticipate it, but we are not of the night. We belong to that future age. We are here in the process of rescuing people. We're here in the process as his representatives uh, while the Messiah is gone, while Jesus is gone. And that life is not in carousing and drunkenness which is pretty common. Uh, here's the description of the deeds of darkness, not in sexual promiscuity. So he gives a few pairing together of descriptive phrases, what the deeds of darkness look like. And that promiscuity, sensuality, usually works itself out in strife and jealousy as well. And I think you have a downward progression of these deeds but we're not to behave in that way because we live in a different power. We have different uh, objectives. We have different purposes in life. So verse 13, life in the darkness. And verse 14 defines for us the armor of life, but put on the Lord Christ. That is the definition of the armor of light because Christ in fact is the light of the world so we might uh, look up Galatians 2.20 somebody want to read that one or somebody probably has it memorized somebody want to quote it for us I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
So that's what Paul is describing. That's the armor of light. It's uh, allowing Christ to live himself through us. And in that, he uh, makes us lights to the rest of the world. So that Ephesians 5, 5, 8 through 14 passage uh, that encourages us to walk as children of light. We could also read, let's see, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I don't have it on the uh, slide there, but for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6 indicates that we can be light bearers in a lost world. And kind of to add on to that, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So don't even put yourself in a position where you know your weaknesses and you know the things that are going to lead to the the next thing that uh, distracts you away from being a light. So that's the conclusion of chapter 13. And that kind of transfers us into the next major subdivision, applying God's righteousness. And let me give you a little bit of an introduction to application in Christian liberty. And I see that to include all of chapter 14 and all the way to the middle of chapter 15. Any comments or questions before we move on? Anything to add to chapter 13 that uh, we just completed? Everybody good? Well, let me give you an introduction here. And there's a few things I want to look at. First of all, I think at the heart of this passage, Paul is assuming that you understand much of what he has spoken of in uh, the rest of the book of Romans, the first part, particularly the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. And he doesn't emphasize so much the idea of freedom in Christ, but by talking about justification and sanctification, underlying those theological concepts is this freedom that we, in fact, have in Christ. Freedom in Christ. So let's take a look at this to lay the foundation for what he's talking about in uh, chapters 14 and 15. I think if you understand this freedom in Christ, it'll clue you in to an issue that uh, took place in the first century, and it'll also help you in terms of what's going on in the culture in which we live in as well. So let's take a look at some passages. There are two aspects to freedom in Christ. It's freedom from that old life. And there's lots of passages that indicate that. Let's look at a few of these. We need to understand what it means to be free in Christ. Because I think that underlying chapter 14, this is the main problem, is not understanding freedom in Christ. And sometimes those that understand it have a conflict with those that do not. And I think that's at the heart of what's going on in chapters 14 and 15. So let's take a quick look 
And maybe we won't have time to read all of these. Might have to remind you next week. But anyway, uh, let's read uh, Romans 6. Who's got 6? I do, Ray. Okay, go ahead. 6 through 7. Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, set free from sin. So we are totally forgiven, no longer bound to sin like we were before we trusted in Christ. So that is a a very important concept to understand. That old life has been broken. We are free from the old life. Skip, uh, Mary Lee, skip to chapter 8 and look at uh, verse 2. Do you want to read it too? Yes, I can. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Okay, so we are free in Christ, there's freedom in Christ. And I think most of you understand that. And that also means that we have been freed from all of the old systems and backgrounds that we come from. You know, we all come from different backgrounds, different, in some cases, different cultures, and even in our group, different countries. So, Uh, Whatever traditions, whatever old systems, and this was especially important in the in the uh, first century. We had Jewish people that came out of a Jewish system that they are now free from. And uh, sometimes not realizing that will cause problems. Who's got first Corinthians 10, 28 through 30? Somebody read that passage. Connie. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Okay, so that kind of hints at a Jewish background but it could also include even a non-Jewish background in terms of old habits, old traditions. Galatians 2.4, this is a controversy even amongst the apostles. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 2.4. Who's got that one? I do. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into the bond into bondage. Okay, bondage to that old system. Judaizers had an influence. And there was a debate in the first century what what is permissible, what is not, in relationship to the old life. And later on in that same Galatians passage, Paul has to even re- rebuke Peter. Somebody got verse chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. I do again. Go ahead. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? 
to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Okay. So going back to that old way of life brings you in bondage, and some people have a hard time breaking away from those old systems. And certainly freedom from legalism, Romans 6.14, we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. So we have been freed from uh, legalism. And we've been freed for a new life, a new life in, in Christ. Chapter 6, 3 through 4, refers to dying with Christ in order that we may now have a way of living in newness of life. And then 6.11 as well. Well, somebody look. Uh, Mary Lee, do you still back in chapter 6? Do you want to read 3 and 4 and also 11? Romans 6. 3 and 4. 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So now we have the freedom to live a new life that we did not have access to before. And he describes it as newness of life. Skip to verse 11. Okay. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, alive to God, a new freedom that we did not have before. You could also just jot down, we won't read verse 14, but we could read it, verse 22, talking about this new life, a new commitment. Somebody, I'd like for them to read Galatians 5.1 and then skip to verse 13. Somebody else got that one? Connie, do you got that one? You got your mic open? I have it, Ray. Okay, go ahead, Joe. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Uh, verse 11. 13. Uh, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through through love serve one another. Okay. So we have this new life, and it's a life of freedom that allows us to do things that we never envisioned before in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's newness of life. So there's a freedom from the old life and a freedom to be able to live a new life. We won't look up the first Peter 2.16, but essentially giving us the same idea. So this concept of freedom in Christ was a problem in the first century. And that problem, we have hints of it in some of the passages that we look at, uh, some of the ones we just looked at and others we could look at where amongst the Jews, they were used to a life of ritual, a life of ceremony, and it degenerated into a life of legalism. In other words, certain things that they could do, certain things they could not do. 
They had to uh, observe Sabbaths, for example. There were certain foods they could not eat. And everything had to be kosher. Some things they were prohibited. And it also included things that were clean and things that were unclean. Now, that's the background. That's that's the culture. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, even Old Testament specifications that have been changed as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. So that's no longer an issue in terms of what you can eat and what you cannot. We have an example in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel himself, because of his Jewish background and because of the law and because of the prohibition in Leviticus 11, for example, there were certain foods that he could not eat and still maintain a clear conscience. So he proposes that uh, they eat vegetables. Remember the whole passage there? That's based on this background that, in fact, is Jewish. Now, Ray, go ahead. This is Mary Lee. I'm, I'm thinking that this is this is the very heart of of our rebellion that st- was started with Adam and Eve in the garden. Because uh, when we have rules around this, we know clearly what we're breaking, and and the rules give us a framework that we are in control of. And so it, it isn't just Jews, but it's so many religions of the world have all these, these bars and these, these uh, barriers around, do this, do that, and so that everything is laid out so that you can do for yourself a, a system so that you feel good. Yep, yep, that's true so as well. That's, yeah. That's a life without the Holy Spirit in us. Exactly. And if you remember Acts chapter 10, um, I was going to look it up, but if you remember the vision that Peter saw, remember he saw this sheet coming down from heaven, and God commands him, eat. And what does Peter say? Lord, I've never done this before. These are unclean. That's right. And in clear conscience, Peter couldn't do it. He didn't quite understand that God had made all things clean. And as you work through chapter 10, what he's doing is illustrating that uh, Gentiles are no longer unclean. In fact, they can receive the same Holy Spirit as the Jews that received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So we have the whole story that leads up to uh, Cornelius. But Peter has to see this vision first to realize that in Christ we are free. And we have a similar situation in Galatians 2. That's the passage I was referring to earlier where Paul has to rebuke Peter, dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with, and I think it's the same issue that we have in chapter 14. Similarly, Gentiles came from a background of pagan festivals, and some of them devolved into drunken orgies that involved immorality and drunkenness and all the things associated with it. And uh, some of these idols, they would sacrifice meat to these idols that they worship. And they come from that background. So now the issue of eating certain foods was an issue for these converts from uh, a Gentile background. 
So converts to Christianity from Judaism, converts from Gentiles, they bring that background until they begin to realize their freedom in Christ. And it takes time to, to begin to break some of those old uh, rituals, some of those, bro- those old uh, legalistic patterns, both Jew and Gentile. So that was a problem in the first century. We'll have to wait till next week to read 1 Corinthians 8. But 1 Corinthians is written primarily to a Gentile audience and the issue of meats sacrificed to idols. And Paul is dealing with similar things in uh, Romans chapter 14 that is composed of both Jew and Gentile. So it's a little bit broader in uh, the Romans passage. So the problem today, we can see it, and uh, I'll expand this next next time, but people come from a variety of spiritual backgrounds. People from all spiritual ages, young and old, mature, immature, uh, different places in their Christian walk, and different, as a result, different convictions, different maturity levels, different denominations that include different uh, practices, different religious backgrounds, and even people coming out of cults that uh, have to break away from some of those old, old patterns. So within the church, sometimes we can encounter people that uh, come from all of these various backgrounds, and it's the, these cultural issues, these background issues, that can be a problem in the church. For exa- and here's just a list of some examples. Some people see baptism differently than others. And to them, to not practice baptism in the way that they were uh, familiar with or came out of a denomination from, for them, they have a problem. Some people have a problem working on Sundays. Some people have a problem with the head coverings or the lack of head coverings. Even pacifism. You might come from that background or the legalistic issues, playing cards, going to movies, some TV, parties, even homeschooling. You know, the public schools have been so corrupted that there are some Christians that feel like it's it's wrong for Christians to go to public schools. And the only right way is either homeschooling or private private schooling. So that can become an issue. Observance, even observance of Christmas and Easter. There are some people that think that there is so much paganism in the observance of both Easter and Christmas that uh, you need to abandon all that altogether. These are just examples, and there's others as well. Well, let's define in conclusion here, and uh, we'll come back and review especially these last things next week so that we can clearly get into chapter 14. We won't even get into it today. But let's discuss very briefly what Paul is describing by the weak Christian. I don't think it does not have anything to do with good and evil. There are standards. There are things that are good. There are things that are evil, that are in fact sinful, that are to be avoided. That's not what is at issue in chapter 14 and 15. It's not an issue of right and wrong. One way of baptizing isn't wrong, per se, as opposed to a different way. Some activities are not necessarily right and wrong. 
Watching TV, for example, is not right and wrong. It, uh, there's other issues involved in that. That's not what is at issue in chapter 14. It's not an issue of obedience as opposed to sin. It's not an issue of spirituality, being more spiritual than another and the others being more fleshly. That's not at issue in chapter 14 and 15. He talks about the weak in faith. He's not talking about saving faith and as opposed to unbelief. That's not what is at issue. He's not talking about strong and weak believers per se. Now, there might be some elements involved in that in terms of spiritual maturity and growth. But even it, maturity and immaturity, that's not what is at issue in chapters 14 and 15. Well, if these are not what are at issue, what is at issue? We are dealing with the issue of conscience. And conscience oftentimes will uh, be hindered, if you will, based on that background that different people come from. And because of that background, that influences the things that we sense inwardly in terms of conscience, and some things bother us. Some things make us feel uncomfortable or make us feel guilty even. So we're dealing with convictions. In other words, what have we developed in terms of our Christian walk, in terms of our understanding? But I think an issue here uh, underlying all this is the issue of freedom, Christian freedom. So the weak believer in this context, I see it as one who does not fully grasp his freedom in Christ. Now, this is very important. I'm going to emphasize this throughout the passage. Amen. The weak believer is not necessarily the believer that is immature, but it's the one who does not fully grasp or has not overcome that background, who does not grasp his freedom in Christ. Right. So, go ahead, Connie. You say it's important to note that those convictions can be changed. Yes. As one becomes more aware of their freedom, those convictions that they once held to can be changed. Can be changed, yes. Likewise, the strong is the one that has a firmer grasp or a better understanding. So the strong in this passage is the one that has a better grasp of this freedom in Christ and has perhaps worked through his background more so than perhaps the weak. So if there's any contrast of weak and strong, I think that is what is in view in this passage. Now there's a tendency, the tendency amongst the weak is to have a judgmental attitude towards those that have different convictions. In other words, they have a freedom to indulge in some things that the weak it bothers their conscience, and their tendency, their tendency is to be judgmental towards those. And we're going to pick that up as we read through some of the passages in chapter fourteen. And likewise, the the strong will have the tendency of pride. You know, well, I, you know, I've worked through all of that. I'm free. You're less mature. You're immature in this. 
to look down upon those that are still struggling in some of these areas and even to the point of despising the weak. So that's the tendency. But what Paul is going to stress, and the only passage I want to read are these three, is the need for acceptance of others regardless of where they're at. Now, he's not talking about tolerating clear-cut sin and things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture, but he's dealing with these issues of background and convictions or lack of convictions, and the need is for acceptance. And that's how he starts off the whole passage. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. In other words, the one who does not fully grasp his freedom in Christ, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We'll expand that. And then in verse 3, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. So we have the word acceptance again in verse 3, and the idea there, God has accepted all who are justified. God has accepted all of the believers, and they are free in Christ. And then again in chapter 15, wherefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So I think that's the underlying emphasis of chapters 14 through 15. And I think if we keep main issues in mind, it'll uh, enable us to work through some of the passages and, and understand what Paul is getting at in chapters 14 and 15. And kind of a concluding idea here, concluding application. And this kind of brings us from chapter 13, where we're encouraged to love one another. And love does not seek its own but in fact, an expression of that love is accepting others just where they're at and uh, loving them all the same. And hopefully that introduction will uh, get us started for next week. I'll review most of that, but maybe not spend uh, as much time on it as we tried to spend today because of the break that we had there. Any comments? Does that make sense? Uh, Ray? All I can see, and I'm looking to see you deal with it, all I can see is this is where you have a big conflict, and this is where you have all of these different denominations, because uh, if you have someone who has these deeply seated convictions, they believe that this is wrong, etc., and you're trying to, to do a program, you're trying to do an outreach program, you're trying to do this in the church or that in the church, and someone keeps saying, no, 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 this is absolutely wrong, this is, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, promoting, uh, you're, you know, you're uh, weakening the faith by this. And so, uh, if you know, you have two sides to say, we need, you know, we need to do this to reach the lost or whatever. No, you can't do that. It's sinful. There you have your problem. And yeah. acceptance, I, I don't see where acceptance works. Well, I think that's what Paul is encouraging. Now, now, you have to distinguish between things that are clearly wrong and things that are uh, questionable, you might say, or things that I, that's where you need to make the distinction. I do understand and I see that where most uh, many, many conflicts arise in 
simply the small things that all of a sudden blow up to be a huge thing. The inconsequentials. Yep. Yep. Anything else? Well, uh, sorry for that interruption. I'm not still not sure what happened. But anyway, Connie, uh, we're praying for the new fells. Why don't we uh, have a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, we love you. We enjoy you. We so, um, as um, Janie prayed at the beginning, we so enjoy learning how you want us to live. I pray that we would be able to take these lessons and truly apply them to our lives. Um, Father, I pray for, uh, as far as the Newfelt's teaching goes, um, that in their teachings about relationships, even these uh, principles would be taught the acceptance of others, that maybe your spouse, your boss, your whoever, whatever relationship you're, you're in this training for, um, is at a different place. And Lord, that these lives would be changed by being able to be accepting of others. We pray for Sharon in this this scam that she's in the middle of, Father God, for uh, her protection, um, your watch care over all of her finances. And for Eric, Lord, um, in all of the issues for this recovery from the surgery that was so long, uh, Father, I don't know if he knows you. You know this. And I pray that you would encourage him in his walk with you. If he doesn't know you, that you would put uh, people of faith in his path to encourage him, even if he does. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you love us. 